President Biden set to speak with Vladimir Putin today about the Russian military buildup near the border of Ukraine. With concerns of a possible invasion, the question is, will the president be able to convince his Russian counterpart to slow his aggression? Plus, a former official with the D.C. National Guard accuses two army generals of lying to Congress about the military response to the January 6th attack. The question is, was help delayed because officials were concerned about optics? And the White House announces a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics in Beijing, citing human rights abuses. China vows to retaliate. The question is, how? It's way too early for this. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early, the show that remembers Pearl Harbor 80 years ago today. I'm John Flamir on this Tuesday, December 7th, and we'll start with the news. A former D.C. National Guard official is accusing two Army generals of lying to Congress about the military's response to the January 6th siege on the U.S. Capitol. The officer, Colonel Earl Matthews, wrote a 36-page memo to the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. He claims that General Charles Flynn, who was the Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations on January 6th, and Lieutenant General Walter Pyatt, the Director of Army Staff, quote, repeatedly misrepresented, understated, or misled the House Oversight Committee and the Defense Department's Inspector General. Matthews alleges the generals falsely claimed the National Guard didn't have the training to quickly respond the day of the insurrection. He writes, every leader in the D.C. Guard wanted to respond and knew they could respond to the riot at the seat of government. But instead, they sat stunned watching. Colonel Matthews goes on to call Flynn and Pyatt absolute and unmitigated liars for their categorization of the events of that day. The memo was first reported by Politico. Flynn and Pyatt didn't respond to messages from Politico seeking comment. An Army spokesperson tells NBC News the Army's actions on January 6th have been well documented, and General Flynn and Lieutenant General Pyatt have been open, honest, and thorough in their sworn testimony with Congress and DOD investigators. A crucial virtual meeting is set for today between President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin as tensions continue to escalate over Ukraine. Biden is reportedly ready to warn Putin of severe economic consequences, including sanctions against the Russian president's inner circle if his army invades Ukraine. President Biden is going to make it clear that a diplomatic de-escalation of the situation is the only way forward per White House aides. Biden also spoke with European allies ahead of the call to discuss the potential sanctions if Russia doesn't comply. Putin, meanwhile, is expected to demand a guarantee that NATO will never expand into Ukraine. The high-stakes call comes as U.S. officials say Russia has massed tens of thousands of troops near the Ukraine border and is preparing for a possible invasion perhaps as soon as early next year. Joining us now, NBC News senior international correspondent Keir Simmons, who is with us from London. Keir, good morning. So great to see you. This is obviously it's a it's a high stakes call for both sides. This is the largest buildup of Russian forces yeah. on the Ukraine border uh, we've perhaps ever seen. Uh, we know both leaders come into this with yeah. some significant asks. How do you expect today's virtual meeting to play out? What kind of results might we see, if any? 
Well, Jonathan, uh, that's right. Uh, it's being described by some as the most important call President Biden has had to make uh, in foreign policy terms uh, since he took uh, office. Uh, clearly, uh, it is going to be extremely challenging because of the balance that you uh, described there in your opening, that they're trying to get the balance between uh, being clear to President Putin the consequences of any invasion of Ukraine and at the same time, trying, if you like, to offer some kind of a diplomatic roadmap that gives Russia the perspective that there is an alternative. That is incredibly ch challenging because of this impasse over NATO. Quite uh, <laughs> simply, uh, the West, Western Europe and, and the US is committed to Ukrainian sovereignty, which means uh, saying that Ukraine should be allowed to enter NATO at some point in the future or collaborate with NATO. Uh, President Putin is uh, completely opposed to that. I think that uh, call between those five leaders, President Biden, the leaders of France, Germany, Italy, uh, and the UK overnight, was really quite extraordinary. It uh, goes to President Biden's, uh, we know, his strategy of bringing uh, uh, allies in. I think uh, that that will be an attempt to debunk any notion President Putin uh, might have that uh, Germany, which is transitioning from one leader to another, is slightly imbalanced, that France, which is facing uh, an election, is slightly imbalanced, that this might be a good time to make a move uh, on Ukraine. It's going to be a challenging conversation, as I say. Listen, afterwards, I think what you'll hear is I think you'll hear the Americans uh, describe how tough they've been and set out the alternatives that they offer to President Putin. I think it'll be interesting to see what the Russians say, whether they say they think they got anything from the call. But in the end, with Russia, what will show that they will show what how they feel about uh, that negotiation, if you like, in what they do in the months and maybe even years ahead. I mean, Jonathan, the reality for President Biden is, is that President Putin can keep this tension going for maybe a year, maybe, maybe two years. President Biden needs in the long term to find a way to not get pulled back into this again and again. Jonathan. Yeah, we just saw, here while you were talking, images of the two leaders' summit in Geneva. And there was real hope on the U.S. side. I was there uh, for that, in the room for when the two men met. Uh, there was real hope right. on the U.S. side that this would sort of put Putin, almost put him away, put him in a box, deal with him early, try to, and then move yeah. on to other aspects of the foreign policy agenda. That's clearly not the case, as we know that Putin is, of course, has yeah. an obsession, as has been described to me, with Ukraine. So let's say that a, a diplomatic yeah. resolution is not readily apparent today. How could this play out? And what do we sense from the people you've talked to over there on the continent? What do we think Putin's eventual goal is? How willing is how far is he willing to go? Well, I think President Putin is always tactical, always looking at the, the situation he faces at any particular time and kind of deciding what to do. We are told by uh, sources both in, in Moscow uh, and uh, European diplomatic sources uh, that uh, it, he hasn't decided uh, to invade Ukraine, although uh, we know uh, that he has managed to worry U.S. intelligence uh, very, very much uh, with those troop, troop build-ups uh, on uh, the border. So uh, I think... For President Putin, and this is one of the challenges for President Biden, for President Putin, Ukraine is absolutely central, not just to how he's viewed in Russia, but also to his foreign policy. It is central to his ambition of putting a line in the, in, in the sand, if you like, those red lines that President Putin talks about uh, over uh, NATO. That's how he'll, he'll view it. Uh, Jonathan, uh, back during that, before that bilat, when I interviewed President Putin, fascinating exchange we, we had, uh, where he claimed uh, that the West 
and it's been said many times, agreed not to expand NATO east. I said to him, well, Gorbachev back then, back when it was the Soviet Union, didn't get that in writing. He said, ah, yeah, you see, you, you tricked an old man. I think President Putin will be determined not to, in his mind, be tricked again. Uh, he wants to stop the expansion of, of, of NATO, but that is extremely, there's frankly no way that President Biden is going to be able to offer that in, that, in this call today. NBC's Kara Simmons, we greatly appreciate it. We'll look for more of your reporting coming up on Morning Joe, and we'll be following this virtual summit all day here on MSNBC. There's also new reporting today that Donald Trump's bout with COVID was worse than the White House acknowledged at the time. Citing the new book from former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, the New York Times reports that Trump's blood oxygen level was 10 points below normal the day before he was hospitalized. Meadows says he was told by the president's doctor they didn't have the resources to treat him at the White House and that he needed to go to the hospital. The president resisted until Meadows says he told him this. It's better that you walk out of here today under your own strength, your own power, than for me to have to carry you out on a gurney in two days. That was enough to convince Trump. According to the Times, Meadows writes that the president had lost so much strength, he dropped the briefcase he planned to carry outside on the walk out to the helicopter. At one point, Meadows recalls Trump telling him, quote, I've lost so much strength, the muscles are just not responding. And I will add that I was on the South Lawn that day as the president went to the helicopter onto Walter Reed. It was striking just how slow he was moving. He was very, being, clearly being very cautious, putting one foot in front of another. New data, meanwhile, is starting to emerge on the Omicron variant, which could give a clearer picture of what the world is dealing with. While the virus is spreading rapidly, there are some early indications that show the new strain may cause, may cause less severe illness than previous variants. According to a New York Times report, researchers at a major hospital complex in South Africa reported patients with the coronavirus are much less sick than others who have been treated before, adding other hospitals are seeing the same trends. Meanwhile, in the U.S., Texas is the latest state to confirm its first case of Omicron. Globally, the variant has been detected in more than 30 countries on six continents. Health officials say it could be the most contagious form of the virus yet. Still ahead, the Justice Department files a new voting rights lawsuit against the state of Texas. Plus, the Los Angeles Police Department releases video of a brazen attack on a security guard during a recent smash-and-grab robbery. Also ahead, a state of emergency has been declared in Hawaii. A storm system is slamming the islands, and some areas could see more than two feet of rain. These stories and so much more when we come right back here at a pre-dawn Washington, D.C. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders-Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. The Justice Department is suing the state of Texas over its new redistricting maps. 
The DOJ says the plans are discriminatory, particularly against black and Latino voters who have fueled the state's population boom. Attorney General Merrick Garland said yesterday the new maps drawn by state Republicans violate the Voting Rights Act. The complaint we filed today alleges that Texas has violated Section 2 by creating redistricting plans that deny or abridge the rights of Latino and black voters to vote on account of their race, color, or membership in a language minority group. After the suit was announced, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton called it, quote, the Biden administration's latest ploy to control Texas voters. Actor Jesse Smollett is maintaining his innocence, taking the stand yesterday during his trial in Chicago, where he is charged with staging a racist anti-gay attack on himself and then lying about it to the police. NBC News correspondent Ron Allen has the details. Nearly three years after Jesse Smollett first reported he was the victim of a racist and homophobic attack, the former Empire actor testifying in his own defense charged with six counts of felony disorderly conduct for allegedly faking the attack and lying to police about it. Smollett telling the jury there was no hoax. Smollett seen in this police body camera video wearing the noose he told investigators the attackers put around his neck. Do you want to take it off or anything? After yelling slurs, beating him, throwing bleach on him and saying, this is MAGA country. The prosecution star witnesses, two brothers, aspiring actors, and associates of Smollett, who say he recruited them to stage the attack, paying them $3,500. Abinbola Asadario testified Smollett said he wanted me to beat him up. On the stand, Smollett insisting he paid the brothers for a diet and exercise plan not to arrange a phony hate crime. Police using images from four dozen cameras to create a sequence of events, including showing the two brothers allegedly using $100 Smollett gave them to buy supplies for the attack. Smollett insisting he's innocent. The Los Angeles Police Department says that bear spray was used during one of the state's recent smash and grab sprees. The department released this security video from a Nordstrom in the San Fernando Valley showing someone ambushing a security guard with the spray. The guard, you can see it, then stumbles around blinded, bumping into racks and displays. The LAPD says officers have made 14 arrests related to the smash and grab robberies, but no one yet has been arrested for this bear spray incident. Still ahead, your New England Patriots come out on top in a windy battle in a downright strange game that was for first place in the AFC East. Plus, the 2021 Heisman Trophy finalists are revealed. Sports, next here on MSNBC. We are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. 
The Biden administration will not send any diplomatic or official representation to the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics and Paralympic Games, given the PRC's ongoing genocide and crimes against uh, humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. As you just heard there from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, the U.S. will stage a diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Beijing Winter Olympics over concerns about China's record on human rights. While it means no U.S. government officials will attend the Games, U.S. athletes will still be allowed to compete. It comes as China faces criticism over crackdowns on pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, its policy towards Tibet and Taiwan, and for detaining and abusing Uyghur Muslims in the country. Calls for a diplomatic or full or full boycott of the Winter Games have only grown since Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai disappeared from public view after making assault allegations about a former senior official of the Chinese government. While Peng has reemerged, questions remain about whether she is acting on her own free will. China warned yesterday morning that it would take, quote, resolute countermeasures to any boycott. They have not yet elaborated. Turning now to a blustery Monday night football matchup in Buffalo, where the New England Patriots ran their way to a seventh straight win and the top spot in the AFC. Extra offensive lineman in there on third and five. Pitch for Harris. Has the first down and breaks it. It's gone. Damian Harris through everyone. Up the middle for the touchdown. That's Damian Harris opening the scoring against the Bills with a 64-yard rushing touchdown that also... Gave my fantasy football team a big win. New England kept the ball on the ground for all but three, three pass attempts in the game by quarterback Mac Jones as 40-mile-per-hour wind gusts played a huge factor on offense. I bet you, Bill Belichick, there was a one for a long time. The Pats only had one passing attempt. I bet you he wishes he won the game just with that. The Patriots' defense, meanwhile, held the Bills to just 10 points on four drives from inside the 20-yard line and a season-low 230 yards. After the 14-10 victory, Patriots linebacker Matt Judon praised the New England offense while taking a playful swipe at his team's rookie QB. Pass off to the offense, really. Everybody, uh, probably besides Matt, he really didn't do nothing besides hand the ball off. The New England Patriots currently the top seed in the AFC. Remember that one year where the Patriots weren't good? Yeah, that's probably over. College football's most prestigious award will go to one of the four Heisman Trophy finalists revealed last night. The players in the running, Michigan defensive end Aiden Hutchinson, along with three quarterbacks, Pittsburgh's Kenny Pickett, Ohio State's C.J. Stroud, and Alabama's Bryce Young. Quarterbacks, they've won the award 17 times since the year 2000, and they've taken home four of the past five trophies. The winner will be announced during a ceremony on Saturday. Sad news here. Medina Spirit, the horse that failed a drug test after winning the Kentucky Derby this year, has died. The three-year-old colt collapsed during a workout yesterday in California. Trainer Bob Baffert said said in a statement that the horse suffered a heart attack. An official cause of death awaits the results of an examination and toxicology report. Time now for the weather, and let's go to meteorologist Bill Karens. Bill, it's certainly getting cold and blustery in the Northeast, but that's not where (laughs) our attention uh, is focused. I know there's been a big-time storm out in Hawaii. 
Yeah, uh, some areas of Hawaii are going to end up with one to two feet of rain by the time this is over. They call these Kona lows. Uh, they happen during the winter time. That's when Hawaii gets their biggest storms. You may have seen the pictures on social media of like the snow on the top of like the two vol- volcanic peaks that are about thirteen thousand feet. That happens every now and then. So that's not their biggest thing. But the thing that's impacting where people live is just the heavy rain. It's just unfortunately not able to drain away fast enough. This is pictures from Waikiki, and it's still pouring over, especially uh, from Honolulu. Oahu northwards. The big island of Hawaii and up towards Maui is getting a little bit of a break now. So let's get into the radar. I'll show you the storm. And uh, it's still pouring this morning. And as we go throughout the overnight hours here in Hawaii, uh, the storm will slowly pull away today. But uh, a lot of the damage is being done now with flash flood warnings still up. So let's return now to the lower 48. And we had a pretty dramatic storm that swept all the way off the East Coast last night. We had a confirmed tornado in Kentucky, and the winds were so strong in Tennessee, I saw something you don't usually see. Uh, a school bus got flipped over, and then an RV blew on top of it. So um, the bus driver was actually in the bus. There were no students at the time. So the bus driver was able to crawl out the emergency exit. Uh, you can even see the glass smash there. And as far as the tornado went, this was an EF1 tornado. Winds right around 100 miles per hour, and this was in Kentucky from that line of storms that went through about 24 hours. Ago. So that storm system has cleared off the East Coast. Everybody is done with it. There's a little bit of snow shower activity left in the Great Lakes, but that's it. It is cold. The wind chills are brutal today. It really feels like winter, especially from Green Bay to Minneapolis. Look at that negative three in Minneapolis. Green Bay, negative 17 wind chill. Detroit is down to 10. So it's a cold morning out there. And the next storm, not much to this one, Jonathan. It's going to be a little bit of a fizzle. We may see some snowflakes on Wednesday in New York. D.C. and Philly, but we're not going to get much in the way of any accumulating snows out of this one. So, uh, you know, those dreaming of a white Christmas, you got to go far, far to the north up towards the Canadian border. Um, And I don't see much snow heading our way anytime soon. Oh, we still got two and a half weeks, Bill. We're still holding out hope for the white Christmas. And we should note that we'll have a live report from Hawaii coming up on Morning Joe. Bill Karens, thank you so much. And still ahead, Senate Democrats are ramping up plans to deliver President Biden's massive social spending proposal before the end of the year. Plus, we'll talk about what's next for Republican Congressman Devin Nunes following his surprise resignation announcement. But before we go to break, we want to know, why are you awake? Is it about the New England Patriots? Email your reasons to waytooearly at msnbc.com or tweet me at John Lemire. Be sure to use the hashtag waytooearly. We'll read some of our favorite answers later in the show. Be right back. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's 5.30 on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm Jonathan Lemire. California Republican Devin Nunes will resign from Congress next month to become CEO of Donald Trump's fledgling media company. Nunes was a dairy farmer before entering politics in 2003, and he has no experience in tech or as an executive. He is the, he is the subject of a popular spoof Twitter account, though. It was revealed last week that the company that plans to merge with, with Trump's company is being investigated by the SEC. Nunes emerged as one of the former president's chief defenders in Congress. As chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Nunes had to recuse himself from the Russia investigation, in part because he was too close to Trump to be impartial. We should note, if Republicans were to reclaim the majority uh, in next year's midterm elections, Nunes would have been up for potentially the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, arguably the most powerful committee on Capitol Hill. 
and yet he's walking away from it for this Trump tech job. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is hitting the gas on the second half of President Biden's first year agenda. In a letter to lawmakers, Schumer doubled down on his plan to finish and vote on the Build Back Better Act before the Christmas holiday, which, as we know, is just over two weeks from now. Schumer's warning that work along the bill, along with upcoming deadlines for the debt ceiling and a defense bill, will lead to, quote, more long days and nights. Despite the proposed timeline, Democrats still have not locked in the support of Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, a necessary swing vote, of course, if the bill is going to pass. The Washington Post reports Manchin signaled just yesterday that he's still worried about the size and scope of the bill. I have concerns. You know, you're, we're talking about ma- major changes in our tax code. And I think my position hasn't changed from, what, July when I gave you all and then you all found out about the letter that Schumer and I uh, had exchanged and discussed, and that was back in August. Uh, and just kind of follow that one through, and it pretty much I'm in the same place I've always been. Joining us now, co-founder of Punchbowl News, Jake Sherman. He's an MSNBC League political contributor and no fan of, quote, more long days and nights. Jake, great to see you. Uh, during the Trump administration, we, of course, we saw Mark Meadows leave Congress uh, to work with the then president. Now Devin Nunez is doing some, and as we just went over, leaving a potentially pretty powerful post uh, to do so. Uh, as Trump's media company forms, you know, we're seeing lawmakers there sort of even try to more closely ally themselves with the former president and believed uh, eventual Republican uh, candidate again. What's up with this? Give us a sense as to what's your state of play about the Republican Party and in particular these Trump loyalists. Well, John, it, it certainly highlights the new pecking order in Republican politics. I mean, people work and, and Devin, frankly, has worked most of his career to become the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. This is a committee he was on for much of his time in Congress. And frankly, when I started covering Congress more than a decade ago, Nunes was known as being and it. it, it you might not believe this now, but pretty steeped in tax policy. And, and basically the way he was viewed was, was the political counterweight or the political, not counterweight, but almost sidekick to, to Paul Ryan. When Paul Ryan was passing some of his early budgets, Nunes was the person that was helping Paul Ryan navigate the politics of it. This is somebody who was a very leading voice on Ways and Means in the early uh, days of the Republican majority, 2009, 2010, 2011, that kind of era. His interest in the intelligence piece, uh, the Intelligence Committee, which he came to chair in the Paul Ryan era, uh, was was is a newfound thing. Uh, this is a newfound uh, a piece of Nunez's personality, of his persona. Um, so it, it was unthinkable if I said, John, 10 years ago that someone would leave ways and means uh, give up a chance to chair the par- the powerful tax writing committee to go run Trump's media company, you'd think I'd lost my mind. I mean, um, this is something that is unheard of, and it has repercussions, frankly. We don't have to get into all these for the House Republican Conference and for Congress overall, because it will because his he's leaving at the end of the year. A bunch of seats open up. They have to find a new a new chairman for the Ways and Means Committee, which is not going to be hard because again, this is the most coveted role in in congressional politics yeah it is dumbfounding on some levels uh jake but thank you for laying that out for us uh we just talked about how democrats are still saying we heard from leader schumer uh that they want to get this vote on build back better by christmas i want to get your take on how likely that is but more though there are some other urgent deadlines still approaching 
Congress here. We know that the government's been funded. It's not going to shut down anytime soon. Uh, but there's also the debt. The debt limit is, is rapidly approaching. There's this defense bill. Walk us through that, too. The agenda, sure. But aren't there other things to take priority? What has to happen and when? Yeah, so we're eight days from a debt limit default, um, and that, that's pretty stunning. So uh, what, what Congress is trying to do is to try to temporarily change the rules to allow the Senate to lift the debt ceiling with just 51 votes. That is a very tall task. I have to imagine that's going to be very difficult. We read about that in length in Punchbowl News this morning. We consider it, based on our reporting, a very difficult task for Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, but we're eight days away from that. The defense policy bill traditionally is passed by the end of the year. It doesn't need to be but is uh, 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 traditionally passed by the end of the calendar year. But Schumer's desire to get the Build Back Better bill through before Christmas is looking quite difficult because the parliamentarian needs to finish her vet of the bill, and that that is not going to be done until next week. And uh, uh, perhaps by the end of next week, the end of next week is December 17th, the day after my birthday, which is the most important day next week. But also, you know, that just leaves eight days, including weekends, before Christmas. And it's going to take a week to get this bill through the House once there is an agreement. There's no agreement yet. We have to keep that in mind. There is no agreement on the BBB. So, uh, you know, sometimes I like to say just believe Joe Manchin when he says what he says. He's not does not seem willing to pass this piece of legislation before 2022. And I think we should take him at his word. So certainly the debt ceiling limit is something we're going to be watching very carefully in the days ahead. Yes. Jake Sherman, happy early birthday to you, but we'll have you back, I'm Thanks. certain, before the 17th. Maybe, frankly, that's a way to start your birthday next week uh, with an appearance on the 5 a.m. And we will all be looking, of course, uh, for the Punchable newsletters hitting our mailboxes in a matter of minutes. Thanks, pal. We yes, will sir. talk to you soon. Still ahead, we'll go live to CNBC for a look at what's driving markets as a rebound on Wall Street signals, perhaps some easing concern over the Omicron variant. Way too early is coming right back. Time now for the business news that you need to start your day. And for that, let's bring in CNBC's Juliana Tatelbaum, who joins us live from London. Juliana, good morning. Uh, there appears to be some, perhaps, easing fears on Wall Street over the Omicron variant. We talked about earlier in the show, seems to be very transmissible, but at least one school of thought that perhaps not as deadly as, say, the Delta variant. Global stocks surged yesterday as investors, for at least one day, shrugged off their concerns. What's your sense of it? Does this signal a trend for the days ahead? Well, it certainly feels that way, judging by the market action this morning and yesterday. So as you mentioned, Wall Street yesterday soared overnight. We then had Asian markets move higher. And this morning, European equities are extending gains after a rally here yesterday. So it seems as though investors are taking some comfort in these early suggestions that the Omicron variant could cause less severe disease than earlier strains. As you said, we still don't have any definitive evidence to support this. But for now, investors are seeking comfort in these um, developments. Also, we got some news out of China yesterday, which is providing some support for markets. Yesterday, Chinese policymakers went ahead and reduced the amount of cash that banks have to set aside in reserve in an effort to support the economy. Then overnight, we got some better than expected trade data out of China. So putting it all together, global markets are in a pretty good position this morning. 
But on the pandemic, the CDC has now listed seven nations, including one of the world's biggest tourism powerhouses, at, quote, very high risk for COVID-19. Juliana, tell us more about that. And what should American travelers expect, particularly those who have perhaps already purchased their airline tickets? Well, as of yesterday, Jonathan, if you are traveling to the United States, you're required to show a negative COVID test within one day of departure. Prior to this guidance, you could, uh, prior to this um, rule change, it's not guidance, it is a rule change. Prior to this, you could show a negative COVID test within three days of departure. So they've narrowed that window, which has put travelers who are currently out of the country in uh, a bit of a tricky position uh, with the tighter rules. Now, in addition to these rules, which apply to all travelers, regardless of where you're coming from, regardless of vaccination status, the CDC yesterday uh, moved to advise Americans against travel to France, Portugal, and five other nations. All of these countries have been added to what is called the level four very high classification. This is the highest travel advisory level. And according to this guidance, the CDC says you should avoid travel to these destinations. If you must travel to them, make sure you're fully vaccinated before travel. So this has gotten a lot of attention over here, especially um, people in France and Portugal. Yeah, soon CNBC's Juliana Talibon. We appreciate that report. She's live from London. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you. Still ahead, Richard Haas joins us to mark this date in history. 80 years ago, the Empire of Japan launched an air raid on the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor, a day that will live in infamy. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Americans today are remembering one of the darkest days in U.S. history. Eighty years ago, a surprise attack from Japan plunged the country into the Second World War. At 7.55 in the morning, Japanese bombs rained down on the Pearl Harbor naval base in Honolulu, Hawaii. In total, more than 2,400 Americans were killed, including 68 civilians. Just one day later, Congress approved President Franklin Roosevelt's request to declare war on Japan. The U.S. would formally declare war on Italy and Germany three days later. And I will say, if you have the occasion to visit the Pearl Harbor Memorial in Hawaii, you should do so. It's very moving. Joining us now, president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the book, The World, a brief introduction, Richard Haas. Richard, good morning. It's great to see you again. We always appreciate it. So that moment there, the entry into World War II, sort of began a series of events that led the United States to become a global influence in economic, political, and diplomatic affairs, the world's leading nation. Are we seeing now that error start to come to a close, perhaps that influence unraveling? Look, it's a big and important uh, question, Jonathan. What was really remarkable is not that the United States responded the way it did after Pearl Harbor, but that it remained the leading most active country in the world after the end of World War II. That, to me, was the really historic moment that after winning the military victory, we did not again retreat. But instead, we stayed active in in the world. The question you ask now, several things are happening. 
One is we're seeing the rise of hostile uh, adversarial other major powers, including Russia uh, and China. That's one issue which is pushing back against America's position in the world. Secondly, are the emergence of these global issues like pandemics and climate change, which threaten us as well as uh, everybody, but there's very little machinery to deal with. And third, and perhaps most parallel to what you're describing, is the United States at home is divided and is looking inward. And that was the case before World War II. And to me, the biggest question looking forward is what desire, not so much ability, but what collective will does the United States have to continue to play a leading role in the world? What will be our commitments? What will be our priorities? And I think that is very much up for grabs. Richard, as you know, I only ask big and important questions. Uh, let's turn now to one of the challenges uh, that you sort of just mentioned, which is the relationship with Russia. President Biden, of course, is holding this virtual summit today uh, with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. Uh, what do you anticipate uh, happening today? Uh, what do you suspect each side's ask will be? And should we come out of this, as was the White House and the Kremlin race to put out their readouts uh, later on this afternoon? Any sense of a resolution or de-escalation? I don't think you'll get any resolution or de-escalation that, that quickly. Russia's going to try to paint itself as the victim, as the aggrieved party. Uh, Western machinations placing new threats against Russia, which, quote unquote, force it to uh, prepare uh, all options. I think on the American side, Jonathan, you're going to see two approaches at the same time. You might call it honey and vinegar. The vinegar will be threats, economic sanctions, more military aid for uh for Ukraine, possibly beefing up parts of uh, NATO. And then I think the honey will be uh, offering the uh, Russians greater uh, diplomatic possibilities in Europe. We may look at ways of re-energizing uh, the process, the so-called Minsk process meant to bring progress uh, in Ukraine, perhaps mutual troop withdrawals back from the uh, from the border, maybe a new approach to discussing European security writ large. So I think the president's going to put both on the table and obviously try to steer Mr. Putin in the direction of, of, of the honey. It's the one, his principal goal, his as in Biden's, is to deter any Russian military intervention. And we'll certainly be covering uh, this important meeting, virtual meeting between the two leaders all day long here on MSNBC. Richard Haas, we really appreciate it. We will have you back on very soon. Earlier in the show, we asked this question. Why are you awake? Angela, she has perhaps the worst reason to be up. She writes this. I slammed my hand in a car door last evening, took a trip to the ER, and the pain is so bad it woke me up. So as usual, if I'm up this early, I watch you. Angela, we're sorry about your hand, and I can't say I'm thrilled with the association between throbbing hand pain and this television program. Dan, what do you got back there? Any more injuries? Well, no, no injuries, but Thomas emails, living in Florida, it's my only chance to see the greatest Christmas tree on earth as you go to commercial breaks. And I think TJ can help uh, us out. Ah, yes. In Rockefeller Center, it's about to get lit up. It happens around 6 a.m. every day. As Joe Scarborough puts it, the commerce tree. And we'll note, way too early merchandise on its way soon for purchase there in the NBC Experience store next time you're in New York City. Valerie watches every morning, she says, but today she's up for this reason, to help her son and his girlfriend with their brand new son, Jace Alexander. Congratulations there. Also up this early, Bill Belichick being sustained by the tears of a nation. Up next, Donald Trump's latest media venture draws SEC scrutiny. And coming up on Morning Joe, Former Montana Governor Steve Bullock joins the conversation with his new message for Democrats. You need to get out of the city more. 
But that's exactly the city where Max Rose is planning a return. We'll hear from the former congressman about his newly announced bid to reclaim his New York City congressional district. Morning Joe has all that and is just a few minutes away. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.